Hi, everybody. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come via YouTube, you uh, know the drill by now, I'm sure. Head on over to officehours.global, our primary web portal, for more information and links about the show. Uh, you can either head there by looking it up, or you can use the QR code, which is normally over here in the corner, I think. Oh, there it is. Yes, it's up there. Uh, scan that, or on top of that, you will see askofficehours.global. You can type that into your browser, and that'll get you there as well. That's the way you can instantly add your questions into the show flow. Our show is entirely built around what you want to know about. So as you ask questions, and uh, at least for the people in the Mukana system, as you vote those questions up, we get to them and spend more time on them and try to do uh, a more in-depth analysis of whatever you want to know about. So use the QR code system, use the regular system, use your votes because your votes do count here. So today, our second hour, we're going to be talking about the Final Cut Pro Creative Summit that I was just at yesterday and the, oh, the day before yesterday, Monday and Tuesday up in Cupertino, California. I have pictures. I have some news from there. And I also have some general stuff. When I go to a seminar like this, I try to come away with some actionable intelligence about either the shape of a particular industry or just something that somebody said to me that I thought was really intelligent. So I have my top five takeaways that I'm going to kind of close my little presentation with. And some of those I think are generic for anybody who works in media and things like that. So that's what's happening today. Mitch, we are in our first hour, not our second hour. So what's our first question today? Thanks, Bill. Our first hour question is from Graham Cardwell in Belfast, Northern Ireland. I've been editing an interview and was using a mask to let the text scroll up behind the interviewee. It runs fine in the timeline, but when I render it out, the text ends up in front of everything. Any obvious things to look at to uh, get this fixed? And you raise your hand first, Mitch, so take it away. I would First, it would be nice, Graham, to know exactly what you're using and how you're doing it. Um, if you're doing it in post, there's a lot of solutions to that. If you're doing it with your ATEM, there's certainly a way to make that happen. Uh, I'll just generalize here. Generally, uh, I would create a uh, maybe a little bit more than a mask. I would create an alpha channel for the uh, interviewee. You could do that any number of ways with a green screen. And if you really uh, 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 want to uh, dig into it, uh, you can do it in After Effects with a program called Mocha Pro. Um, you need to create that uh, cutout so that it uh, knows to go in front of the text that's your, uh, that's your background. There's no way that it could just magically go in front or behind. And I can't imagine a situation where um, just the way you have stacked the timeline uh, channels that that would happen. Generally, you would stack the interview on top of the, uh, the text so that the uh, uh, alpha channel can do its thing. But uh, without more information, I can't be more specific for you. Alex. Yeah, I mean, the impression I got reading the reading the uh, question is is that he is he's, he's just drawn a mask that should cut the text out, um, which should work. Uh, this is, this looks like a rendering order error um, in the rendering system. So there there is something going on where it's it's not rendering it now I, without knowing what application. So definitely, if you resubmit this question tomorrow or later today. Submit, let us know, always let us know what application you're using because it's hard to tell which one might be having trouble and what they, you know, if I was in, uh, for instance, if I was in After Effects, I'd probably pre-comp that layer um, and, and that would do a lot of what Mitch was talking about, which is kind of burns it in. And then I would look at the alpha channel because the alpha channel should be defined by that mask. Um, and so that would be, that would be my first thing to do. I don't know why After Effects would have a trouble with a mask. I mean, I use masks all the time in motion. <laughs> so, so, um, so, and that's, and they work just like alpha channels or they should. And so if it's not, it seems like you have there, it could be something that the file types that you're using, 
the, I mean, I, I will tell you, we see all kinds of errors when we use anything other uh, than ProRes. <laughs> like, you know, like, so using MP4s, uh, HEVC, you know, lots of other things. Uh, they cause all kinds of problems in our renders where something looks fine during in the timeline and does not look fine when we render it. And it's because it's being it's being sent through another pipeline um, to manage that problem. While it says it's easy and anyone could do it, there's a reason that a lot of us conform content is because we just have we have less rendering errors. And it's the rendering error. It's not the timeline errors that we have trouble with. It's rendering errors. And so um, so look at whether you're, you're I, the first thing I would do is make sure that you've conformed everything to ProRes. The second thing I would do is uh, pre-comp it or pre-render it. Give that a shot and let us know. Okay, hopefully, Graham, that took care of things for you, at least gave you an area to explore. Next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado asked, Apple personal voice training under accessibility. How can I record the highest quality 15 Pro Max into audience interface with a decent quality mic from a quiet clothes closet. Want to change pitch so two times speed sounds normal, not high? I usually listen at two times speed. Congratulations on the closed closet voice booth. I did that yeah. for many years in the early days before I bought a voice booth. So, Alex, help me. We had a guest last year that was like, I, you know, we were like, well, you sound so good. Why don't we just, we're going to have you on, we'll have you on the live stream. And they're like, I can't be on the live stream. Like, I, you can't, I'll, I'll give you a picture. And I was like, but we were like, but why? You sound so good. And they're like, yeah, but I'm in a closet. You cannot, you cannot stream me from my closet. Um, yeah, I don't think, so it shouldn't look, the pitch shouldn't change. I mean, so most of the, the speed uh, ramps that are available now do an automatic pitch change to bring you back down and just simply speed you up. So that shouldn't be a problem. Um, and I, I only assume that you're talking about any other idiosyncrasies when you're actually talking into it. Um, and I guess the question is, are you trying to use the interface to go into the, into the iPhone or the iPhone to go into the interface. I think what you want to do is have an eye with a 15. You can now hook up almost any interface into uh, the iPhone and make it make it go. So uh, so I think that uh, you should be able to, I mean, anything should work there. And then you just want a good solid mic. Uh, the only thing I would say, I mean, it's going to figure all of those things out with or without you. But I, I have to keep saying, um, I, I see this error a lot, <laughs> is... Uh, unless you're really good at talking or you have a very specific thing, I highly recommend keeping when you're recording, and this is for all recording, is that you take you take a, a, a rectangle that comes out of the corners of your eyes and goes down to your chin, you know, and, and just project that out from your head and don't put a mic there. <laughs> like, you know, so, so don't put a mic in that area. Um, we, we just end up with so many pops. I mean, some people get away with it. There's people on this panel that do fine without that, but it's like, a, you know, if you just don't do that, a lot of things go, a lot of problems go away. Um, yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. I just saw a weird uh, device on uh, Amazon, believe it or not. It's a foam globe that slides over the uh, microphone. The whole thing is a sphere and it has a uh, pop filter on the front of it. And apparently it's, it's cutting down all the background noise. So maybe the foam Nerf windscreen would foam work well for you. To that I'm leery of those. I've tried all sorts of things. Anytime you put something around your microphone as opposed to around the whole area of your microphone, it's going to be problematic. At least you won't have reflection. You'll just lose a lot of other things. Like you'll, yeah. what will typically happen is you'll sound really bassy. So like with that foam, what's, what you're going to do is you're going to cut everything, you know, above a thousand hertz off and you know you're going to su suck that all up but you're not going to suck up a lot of the bass 
And so you're going to end up with this really, you know, like kind of, that's my guess. Roomy. It'll sound roomy sometimes. No, no, it won't sound roomy. It'll just sound boomy. Ah. It'll, it'll be like, you know, but but the room will be gone. Your, your, your reflections will be gone. So they'll go, oh. And someone who doesn't do a lot of voice work will go, oh, that sounds great. Like it doesn't, I no longer hear my room. So it's, you know, after, you know, but, uh, but it's not really fixed. As, as someone who does a lot of voiceover too, uh, those sounds, particularly popped peas, are endemic to this business. In fact, every microphone has a little different, uh, and how you address the microphone, whether you're up close, far away, whether you speak across it, as we're talking about, or get right up front and, you know, you're close to it. A lot of us, when I move and I'm doing real voiceover here and I'm uh, using my Neumann, I have to use a pretty serious pop filter because it is so sensitive that literally plosives are a major problem. And so with this and the Cedar noise reduction system in place, I can do clean voiceovers out of here. But it took more – the better your equipment gets, the more sensitive it is to things that don't sound right. In fact, we had a huge discussion just the other day in the audiobook groups about uh, mouth clicks, which I've been doing radio for years and I never had to deal with them. But now that I'm doing really long sessions – the little tiny noises that come out of my mouth in terms of clicks and things like that between words, they don't like them in audiobooks. So I have to use a declick process through there. It's just, it, it's weird. Mitch, you had another thought before we leave this? Yeah, you touched on a couple of things that are interesting. Uh, my technique will do a lot. Um, I just have a little foam filter on my U87 where I do my voiceover, and it, it does a fine job getting any breath sounds in there. But the, uh, the, the easiest thing you do is don't eat a donut before you do a voiceover or do, do a test. Don't drink dairy products because it, it just makes your mouth all gooey. Yeah, there's, there's all sorts of techniques, warming up and things like that. And yes, hey, your mouth ecosystem is hey, important. Hey, Mitch, I just want you to know I got a U87 too. Hey, I just, I is it the real one or the warm? That's U87 ish. <laughs> it's a U87 ish. I bought it. I had to try it. I had to try it. How much it. did that cost you? Uh, twenty six dollars. This is twenty six dollars. <laughs> yeah, that to me just scared me away. <laughs> I'm surprised you actually got, for got what, delivery. Three grand now. <laughs> oh no! It, I will tell you. You know, other than getting like a thousand emails a day from Timu, it was very effective. Like you know, they. <laughs> I, I have not seen so many deals for $1 before. Fortunately, I gave them my my Apple, like, hide my thing, whatever, so I can turn oh, it off. Oh, you good. You so, but, veiled your idea. But, yeah, like, here, 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 here. So, so here's my, here's, here's the, here's the Stellar X2. So we are glad that Ofan is so pleasant with us. His present annual pains we thank you for. So here, that's, that's what this sound sounds like. I'm holding this one, but. We are glad that Ofan is so pleasant with us. His present annual pains we thank you for. And we have matched our rackets to these balls. <laughs> $26. It's clear-ish. It's clear-ish. Yeah, not, not much on the low doesn't, end. Doesn't quite sound, doesn't quite sound exactly uh, the same. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it's worth at least $40. I know, exactly. I think this is the best $26 mic. I, I will say best $26 mic that I've, that I've used. <laughs> so not the best mic that I've used. Anyway, there you go. I can tell the difference even with an IFB not listening on actual headphones, so I don't have any low end in my head, and I can still hear it. Anyway, that's okay, interesting. Back to a regular schedule program. Yeah, as but that's great. I'm glad it arrived, and I'm glad you could at least. I, I just was like, we can talk about dollars. Why do we sometimes spend know. a little we, more for gear? I felt like we, <laughs> as a group, have to be able to tell people that it's not going to sound the same. I know it says U87. It's not going to sound <sighs> like a U87. We just proved it. So there you go. Just a number. All right. Next question. 
Uh, Joe Phillips for Murphy, North Carolina, says, Resistance is futile. Korg assimilation has begun. Uh, he's thinking of the Scarlet 4i4 to interface with the MacBook Pro and sound desk. Can the Korg mind meld with the Scarlet as well? Or should I assimilate the Flow 8 I have into the collective? The favorite microphone of the Borg, Alex. Yeah, I, I, I'll let Chris uh, speak to it directly. I will say that I, I will keep on repeating that the Scarlet is the source of probably the most lost time I've ever had when it comes to working with, with people on the far end of dealing with Scarlets. Now, most of my experiences have been with the 2i2, but they're both in the same family. And as a result, you know, Focusrite makes a lot of great things. I don't think the Scarlet line is one of them. Um, and so, uh, so I would just, that's the only pause that I would have. I'd probably, if someone handed me a Flow 8 and a Scarlet, I would use the Flow 8, you know, for, you know, over, over the Scarlet, um, just because of past experience. Um, but, uh, but I'll let Chris talk to whether it will tie into Soundesk or not. Chris, take it away. First of all, Joe, I don't know how much Star Trek you're watching, but I'm going to ask you to cut it in half. Okay. Just <laughs> right off the top. Just, you, you need to back off. Okay. Um, what you're looking for, Joe, and the short answer is I have no idea, but what you need to find out is do you have the ability to get a direct feed out of your input device, your, um, your audio interface, that you can assign to be just your microphone and always your microphone? And that's, that's what we ended up doing. And, and the thing you're going to want to look at, um, I don't see anything in your, well, is Soundesk cross-platform, Alex? No. Okay, so then obviously you're on a Mac. So what you want to do is you want to lo launch the application called um, Audio MIDI Setup. It's in, the, it's in your utilities folder. You don't have to go buy it. And what you want to do is you want to look at the, the Scarlet and see, does it give you access to four, uh, to four separate US or multiple um, USB outputs, more than just the left-right stereo? And keep in mind that audio MIDI setup being an, a, a Macintosh app is looking at those ins and outs from the Mac's point of view. So you're going to have to look at the input tab because it's coming in from the Scarlet. The, the ones in audio MIDI setup that are labeled in, those are your outputs on the Scarlet. And if you can do that, then you'll be able to do um, the trick that we talked about, about getting your microphone um, funneled into that mix um, right at the very, very end. And, and other than that, yeah, probably, probably. I tried, to, I tried to make this whole tutorial be hardware agnostic, or, or I didn't want to get into talking about the hardware, and, but like I said in the tutorial, you kind of have to mention it a little bit. I would give some thought, too, to a small... Uh, book on what to do with my flow eight now that I know if you're not going to use it. We got so much equipment that comes in, useful, great I'm super stuff. super intrigued by the flow Can eight. We move out? Yeah. Primarily primarily because the 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 user interface like on the Mac just seems very um very comfortable, very uh approachable whereas the the user interface on the sound devices is just really, really kind of makes me angry. By the way, I, and I, I can't show you because of my other problem. 
I did this little gimmick here with my phone and then using my phone as a, um, as a, as a way of sharing the user interface on my, uh, sound devices mine's on a little lift that I made for it. So it's anyway, wingman. That's a no. tough challenge though. The user interface thing, um, in terms of you get something with a tremendous amount of power and then you discover that you really have to dig down through multiple menus to get to it. So I, I, hats off to the user interface people who are managing to make complex things as simple as they can. And maybe ideas like that Apple thing that they do with progressive disclosure, we're going to only show you what you need at the beginning and then you're going to be able to see more as you get more sophisticated. Uh, the more user, the more uh, companies that kind of do something like that, and plenty of them put a lot of effort into not just them into user interfaces, boy, it, it goes a long way, in my opinion. Let's go to the next question. And it's from Douglas Carmichael asking, how do you safely use lasers on a show site? Are they controlled by DMX or by a dedicated system? Alex. Uh, most of the lasers that we've, that we've worked with are controlled by DMX, um, and uh, we spend a lot of time making sure they're not going to go into somebody's eyes. So um, there is a, it is a lot of pre-pro. It is a set of rules of where they can and can't go. Um, and uh, we've definitely used lasers where there is a whole bunch of warnings that come with it, like no one can look into these. Um, and, uh, and so we, you know, set planes over where people are going to be and we make sure that we test it and make sure it's not going underneath that. Um, and you don't have a lot of people in the room when we do it. <laughs> like, you know, like literally we just take the time to, there's usually a room and at a time, at one moment, there's basically a person, the person programming it is programming those during lunch break or something like that and making sure that they're not going under. They get to make sure that they have a sense of it and then they're really careful with it. Now, I don't, Tlaloc would probably be a better person. If you see him on the, he probably knows more about it than I do, but on the concerts that we've used them for, that's been basically clear the room for lunch and then they they kind of basically get them all kind of where they want them and then we and then we bring people back in and these are really high powered lasers that are designed for these concerts um they're not like the ones that you buy at a dj <laughs> at a dj store so um so they but they look great um and uh but that's the thing you have to kind of take into account but you definitely have to be careful with them they are high powered very high powered and I don't think if you if it glance past you, I don't think you're going to go blind, but it's not something you want to be exposed to. Yeah. I was talking to one of my friends who does a lot of major concert stuff, and he was saying, I guess there's some of them that pulse very rapidly, kind of in the same way that we've seen uh, other technologies that dim light by pulsing it very rapidly. And they measure very carefully how much time that can hit an eye before damage begins, yeah. and they try to stay way under that. So if you get something like a mirror ball that's coming by real fast and they've dimmed the power it can be safe, but you have to know what you're doing because Alex is exactly right. Full-powered laser in a retina, that is not a good combination at all. That'll be permanent damage and lawsuits will ensue. Let's go to the next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado has a question. Does anybody make a small neutral density filter that will fit on a small rig cage and backplate that will not interfere with the LiDAR sensor? Guy Cochran's going to start us off. Guy, what do you say? You know, I was trying to find something uh, because I have some of those Mavic uh, ND filters, and I know from one of his previous questions that that's what he's looking for, something that will just go right over the top. I couldn't find anything that would allow that threading. But there is, if you want to go ahead and invest in Small Rig's uh, actual um, Brandon Lee mobile video kit, it, it is a whole case that then has this thread um, that allows you to uh, install uh, ND filters, but it doesn't interfere with the LiDAR. So you can see that there's a... 
there's holes inside of this for each of those. Once you put a filter on, now that's a different story. I don't know what happens. So it would be worth testing, but maybe buy it from somewhere where you can return it if it doesn't work. But I'll put a link to the chat in this for this Brandon Lee mobile video kit. Cool. Alex. Yeah, yeah. The the trick has been mostly the the lidar part is going to be hard. I think you're going to end up blocking the lidar with a lot of things. Moment lenses makes a whole series of of ND filters that um, that should fit onto the small the the small or the yeah the small rig. Um, so the small rig is compatible with the moment lenses, and they have tons and tons of lenses, and they have also tons and tons of ND filters, and they have ton, tons and tons of ND filters for those lenses. They have ND filters for Mavics and all kinds of you know all kinds of things. I haven't seen one that where they have ND that would just pop over your existing lenses and stay out of the way of the LiDAR. So that the, it's protecting for the LiDAR, I think, is the complicated part of that process. And I'm not totally sure why you need that, but I'd be interested to find out. Mitchell? And if you're using a regular camera and not a uh, iPhone, typical way to do it is a matte box on ra uh, rails, and then you just slide the ND filter or whatever other filter you're using. And... Uh, that's the way that works, but not for a Mac iPhone. Yeah, and for those of you who aren't used to them, uh, ND filters are one of the most useful tools you can get, particularly in this day when people like that shallow depth of field use. If you're working outside or someplace where there's a lot of light, it's very hard to get your aperture wide open. So an ND filter is the tool of choice usually to stop down the light coming into the lens so that you can open up more and get more shallow depth of field, even in a bright scene. So very useful, and this stuff is really it's it's wise to study this stuff up. Let's go to the next question. Craig Kadoki from Toronto, Canada. Chris, with the Korg Nono Nano, I think that's Nano 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 controller, have you thought about setting the rotary encoder to be the Oxen level to zoom instead of the channel pan? It might be more useful. Chris, dive in. Craig, I think that's a great idea. Um, Although I don't know that there is any connection point that you can tag to that. If you can figure it out, it, it makes sense. I will say that I do use the pan, but I only use it. I've set pan for my Unity, so my comms is just in one ear. And other than that, I never touch it. So I don't need to have eight knobs uh, dedicated to panning all the, the different things. And by the way, Alex, I did toy, I, I gave it a lot of thought to the whether or not um, the left-right should be out to zoom or the aux should be out to zoom that we discussed at the end of the show yesterday. And I thought about it, and I actually changed it last night. And I even moved my little red fader over to the, to the last uh, fader on, um, on the core. Do you have core. to scrape off the nail polish? No, no, I just... You just Pull it off and oh, push it, it, move oh, it over, okay. pop it, it off. Wasn't bolted on. Uh, but then I, I, I played with it for a little bit, and I and I went back. I don't think I, I don't think you need to do it one way or the other. But for me, it just made more sense to keep it the way it was. Okay, hopefully that took care of your question, Craig. Let's go to the next question from Samuel Nordvik in Norway. When building a Fenwick mixer, could a DAW like Reaper be used in place of SoundDesk? Any downside of using a full DAW? except for being slightly more complex to set up. What do you think, Chris? Uh, no, I don't think so. Any sort of digital mixer that has uh, the ability to create auxes and multiple outputs, is it's fine. Keep in mind, you know, this. if you go full, full ham, full retail on this little setup that I did here, uh, SoundDesk is 30 bucks, the Korg is 65, 70 bucks, something like that. 
and loopback. Loopback ends up being the most expensive thing. I think a lot of people in this community may already have loopback, and but it's totally worth it. I mean, Mickey and I were talking about it late last night. Like, oh, th by the way, they commented. Uh, uh, the uh, oh, did they? Rogue, Rogue Amoeba commented on one of our videos. Yeah, nice. They said, "Hey, good job, good job with loopback." So, um, you know, it's not you're you're like under two hundred bucks when this is all done. Uh, I don't know how much Reaper is. It might be better. Sure. I think Reaper's free or something very little. It's not That's very a good price. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's hard to beat that, but still. Uh, all right. Let's slip to the next question. Craig Kadoki from Toronto, Canada. Big updates to Logic Pro earlier this week. Any comments or experience yet? I don't use it, but Alex, what do you think? Yeah, no experience yet with it. I just haven't had time since they actually did the release. The things that I'm actually interested in are the the mastering assistant. It does look cool. It's not something I probably use, but but it's something that um, uh, it's supposed to you know kind of clean things up for you if you if you're still trying to figure those things out. Um, the uh, I am interested in the transform any audio sample into a malleable sound that can perform be, uh, that you can perform using sample alchemy. Um, I think that. It feels like Apple's really looking at loops. Like they have a lot of things here that are connected to, you know, being able to, re they have a break beater, break, break beat breaker um, that is a sophisticated time and pitch morphing instrument, which I really want to check out. They have a lot of, they added a lot of textures to the sample, uh, texture sample alchemy pack that's free. And so there's, they're definitely paying a lot of attention to kind of the live performance. I think if, if it does feel like, and we'll talk about this in the second hour, that Apple is looking for certain niches where these apps make the most sense. And I think that they're leaning logic more towards uh, Ableton Live than they are towards Pro Tools. Like it's there, there or, or other things like that. They're kind of, there's, there's a niche there that feels like, and that could be just the product manager likes that kind of thing. So, um, so you know, but it feels like that that's what they've added a lot to. They have added 32-bit float. Um, so that is, uh, that's important, especially for, for us that are, those of us who are using, and you can record in 32-bit float. So if the device supports 32 float as a 32-bit float, as a, as a, you can now record in that. Um, and, uh, but those are the, you know, those are some of the big, um, I'm trying to think, those are the big things. What I was kind of surprised at is we didn't see more development in the Atmos and, you know, the surround stuff. Apple pushed that pretty hard. And there was definitely room for them to add more to make it simpler and easier to set up. Um, and they didn't take that here. So, so it'll be interesting to see if they, uh, if they improve that over time. That assistant module sounds like one of the places that they're moving machine learning into their software if you're, quietly. It, yeah, it's one of those things like if you're getting started with Logic, you might turn it on to have it fix a bunch of things for you. I think that most experts using it probably would not would not use it. No, no, no. I, yeah, I absolutely agree. But I just remember, you know, for example, something as simple as white balance, I remember doing it over and over and over again. And it was always the same thing. Put up a white card, shoot it, get the camera balanced. That was always a step in the process. And I remember thinking at one point, you know, why is this, why do I have to tell it? <laughs> Can't it just right. figure out from the chip and from analyzing the color how to correct the white balance at that level. And it seems like that's happening more and more. And I've not had to white balance anything I've shot for quite a while because I haven't used my old cameras. So that's kind of fallen by the wayside. Hopefully we'll get more of those kind of things where a known, here's how to fix it. You can go in and change it afterwards, but it's just built into the algorithm and you shouldn't have to bother with that anymore. Fingers crossed for that. Let's go to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. 
What do you use for project management? My company uses Jira, which is designed for software, but not AV project management. Yeah, we've actually had whole shows on Monday on this topic. So look back on our library for right now. Nigel Dessau is going to help us out. Nigel? Yeah, big fan of Jira, partly because of the stable of products it comes with. So we also use Confluence and Trello, and those combinations are pretty good. I think generally my experience of project management tools is unless you're really a project management professional, then Excel is a great tool for doing project management on. And there are other tools. Monday is very popular. Smartsheets is very popular. For people who are masochists, there's Microsoft Project. But by the time you get to those sorts of things, you better have a PMI certified person doing this because that's there's as much discipline in how to use the tools as the tools themselves. There's some wisdom there. Alex, what do you think? I have to admit that for the most part, most of the companies I've worked with use Google Docs. Like, like I mean, like they, you know, there, there's a lot of other things that you think of, but the, the number one thing that we see in almost every project, every somewhere is Google Docs. It's, it's somewhere uh, hidden in there. Um, and Google, even just Google, um, you know, the sheets, obviously, for timelines. And again, I think there are much better tools. There are a lot of tools that are out there. The hard part is getting buy-in. So if, especially if you're working with external companies, um, you know, the, it's just really hard to get, it seems to be kind of the, uh, the, the thing that everybody knows how to use, you know, and can collaborate on. And, and I'm always amazed that some, we haven't done something better. And we've tried other things. We've added lots of other things to it. And we do use other tools. But what we see showing up over and over and over again is Google Sheets and Google Docs. If you go back in the archives of Office Hours, and our Discord server has uh, links to all the past shows, and it's searchable, and you look for that. We did on a Monday um, a long thing on project management. We had some excellent guests who really dove deep into this for the kinds of larger projects. So I would highly recommend you go back and check out that show if you haven't seen it already. Let's go to the next question. From Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. Two follow-up questions from yesterday's lab. Can the channel meters on Soundesk be pre-fader? Uh, does the Soundesk seem robust enough to use it as a full production mixer used with DVS, plugins, etc.? Chris? Um, I don't believe so. I, I was just clicking around. I, I got to say, though, Craig, I don't know why I... I'm not saying it, I'm, you're wrong, but I don't know why I would want the faders to be... Uh, the meters, rather, to be pre-fader. I mean, I guess it's kind of cool to see that something is there before you fade it up. But if I don't know. If it's pre-fader, adjusting the, the fader doesn't change the meters. So I don't know. I don't, I don't understand that. And I don't know what DVS is, but, I mean, I would do a small show that... I wouldn't do an Alex Lindsay show on Sounddesk. Um, okay. <laughs> Alex, would you it, do it? Alex? It, 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 it all show comes down to the whole risk-averse thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it, it, it depends. I mean, one of the things that I have been looking at is, and I it kind of stopped because I was having trouble with loopback, which, of course, got fixed really quickly when I went back to reinstall it. Um, but the, uh, it was, so when loopback broke, it was asking for all the stuff that I had to do to, to get it back in again. And then when I, I simply waited six months and turned it back on and said, reinstall loopback, and I went, sure. And I just did it. <laughs> it's without any trouble at all. So so now I have it back in there. Just, you just got to wait sometimes. Um, so what I was building before that I had kind of stopped building was having the video production uh, work inside of Memo Live and have Soundesk do the audio and then be able to have pull out ISOs out of, um, out of Zoom ISO 
feed feed the video into Mumo Live, feed the audio into SoundDesk. And I'm going to probably pick that back up again and play with it. I think it's a great little like all in my studio kind of production pipeline that I think could be really interesting. So I'm I'm playing with that um, to go you know as I move forward. And I think it is, DVS, of course, is, is uh, Dante Virtual Sound Card. And yes, you could have a bunch of DVS flowing into that um, and then make that available um, in, uh, in SoundDesk and, and mix it. I think that, you know, it, it all comes down to how much, you know, how much processor speed are you using? There's no reason why this can't mix a, reas a reasonable show. Um, I don't know if I'd replace a mixer with it all the time, but I think that if you have a powerful enough Mac, which now is... The advantage of these kind of apps is probably a Mac Mini could run, you know, if you had eight inputs and you're running something, you're probably going to have a little bit of higher latency, so you probably don't want to make it a live show. But if you're streaming something or you're bringing something in and you want to mix it, I think it could actually work. And so, um, so anyway, so it's it's it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I'd like to push it a little harder. Again, I I got much more comfortable with it yesterday after the lab. Um, you know, it was one of those things that I just I it. it that the labs force me to <laughs> to jump on. So uh, so anyway, so I think that uh, I'm I'm going to play with it a lot more. Chris, you want to follow up? Yeah, uh, Alex was mentioning the the Mac Minis and stuff like that. I want to point out that um, the everything that I did yesterday and in the demo, um, the tutorial video, the short 11 minute video, I did on the oldest production machine I've ever used. It's a six-year-old iMac. Uh, I'm running SoundDesk on it. I'm running Zoom on it. I'm running my ATEM software on it. I'm running multiple webcams on it, and I'm running OBS on it. So all of my picture-in-picture -picture and cutting between it, all that was being done on a six-year-old computer. That being said, after updating uh, Sonoma last night, I can't get OBS to work anymore. <laughs> and and it, it's, it's, you know, out, look at Al, can we cut to Alex, please? This is schadenfreude. Like, God, zooks. Yeah, there you go. I, I, just, update. I just hit update. Ah, nothing yes, ever so happens. I'm, ah. I'm getting, I'm getting beat, the beat down. And I said, <laughs> yes, yeah, sometimes stuff happens. And this is a bad one. But, ah. Yeah, worked so, flawlessly uh, right up until it completely didn't work at all. <laughs> you, know, you know what they say, Chris? Chris, one step ahead, you're a leader. Two steps ahead, you're a martyr. I'm, you, I'm two steps behind took, right now. Took a couple, so took a couple arrows on that one. I can't cut between my screens. <laughs> and it's not that OBS doesn't work, and it's not that Zoom doesn't work. They just don't work together. Like, I can't get yeah. OBS. And by the way, somebody um, <laughs> somebody on Discord, uh, Reverend Tim, no, yeah, Reverend Tim said that I should try to force quit OBS in the activity monitor. Um, I did that, Reverend Tim, uh, but I, I I think I need to like reboot the machine. I don't know. I've, just like Alex <laughs> had to wait six months for, for Loopback to work, I will be back um, in the spring. So it's been nice seeing you guys. I'll talk to you all later. You'll be fine. Uh, I neglected to mention a little bit ago that we were always looking for your new questions. So if you haven't put a question in today and you'd like to, please take care of that and please vote on the questions. We are driven by what you want us to talk about. The next thing you want us to talk about is in the form of the next question. Mitch, what is it? 
And it's a QR question coming to us from Marielle Shusha Meira from Weebelo. Please, can the recording of Fenwick's pre-show demonstration and talk with Bill about editing techniques, including compound clips and tracks, be shared so everyone can learn from it? It was a genius presentation and point-counterpoint about the different ways. Uh, thank you. That was very sweet of you to say anything like that. Chris? He was talking about me, Bill. Genius. Yeah, he was talking yes. about me. Okay. Now, um, what I'm going to ask Bill is that in the pre-show, so don't don't let us talk too much. Um, so, uh, Alex, this is something that we have talked about before in the past, and at the risk of of trying to sell labs to you, um, this is the my my technique of editing multi-screen videos by using compound clips inside of Final Cut. And I'd be willing to put together a presentation I, sometime. I only have to say uh, yes when, like, whenever you want to do it. Like, we'll figure it out. Like, I think when I, I can would get love my to see OBS that. to work again. If you can get OBS <laughs> to work spring. again, so let us know. Uh, but, but we would love to. I mean, I, I actually think I think that the the number of questions we have today is underlining the interest in the labs. So, um, so I think that that's. Uh, um, also, yeah. I will say, and, and it, and I realize that this is a niche thing with the least, the least uh, popular editor. But I go super deep into using the rolls, um, and there's some really great tricks with exporting. Uh, you could build presets for your export patches, and so, like, quite often, uh, people will say, "I want all the music on screen A." left and right. I want all the dialogue on screen B left and right. And I want all the effects on screen C left and right. And they mix them, you know, and it's super simple to do that when you build the presets. But anyway, I, I could go super deep into it and it's, it's kind of fun, but honestly, I mean, uh, Merrily? So apologies. I, uh, Mariel. I don't, I don't know how many people really would care. It's I think it's a thought process, though. I think understanding how it works, I think, is useful just from just understanding. All that Nigel underlining. Nigel, I say. yeah, no, I was going to say I, I love the idea, but what I think I would ask us to do is to break it down into more chunks. So the the thing that you did, which still doesn't work for me, but that's my problem, um, is there's like three or four very juicy things, and I think you could, particularly on the one you were just describing, Chris. There's probably a workshop in using secondary timelines. I think there's a workshop on roles. I think there's a workshop. So don't try and do too much because, well, yesterday was great. There were no real questions because it was such a detailed thing. So if we can modularize it, I think, and do it over a number of sessions, that will probably be easier for the rest well, of us. I to will just along. note, there could easily be 15 sessions on roles right. alone. Well, I, I think that yeah. I think that I think that doing a lab that kind of walks us through all of those things and we piece those together and we kind of figure out what what the lab looks like in one or two sessions on office hours and then we can go into after hours or we can do something else like we can kind of play with it for people who really want to dig in and ask questions but um, but I am interested in doing more of these so yeah, absolutely uh, Chris you want to follow what, back up yeah and what I'm hearing Nigel is more Fenwick labs and I'm more screen time, I'm all for it. Yeah. More meat. <laughs> of course. Uh, and right. there will be a PayPal link. Anyway, uh, we're having lots of fun. And thank you for just enjoying the pre-show. I'm sorry it's not captured and sent out, but we 
as you can tell, we're all interested in sharing as much knowledge as we possibly can as often as we can. That is the whole purpose of office hours being here. So we'll figure out what we can do and do it. Thanks for the question. Let's go to the next one. And the next one drops in via our QR code for Matt Wood in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Alex, can you give us a brief overview of your advanced presentation setup? In particular, curious about running multiple versions of Keynote. Alex, take it away. Yeah, so the, the basic setup right now is that I have a Zoom machine. That's what connects to Zoom. Um, so when I'm doing a presentation for someone, I have a machine that's just Zoom. Like it's not doing anything else. I then have an application, either one or two application um, uh uh, Mac minis. These are all Mac minis. Um, so I have one application or two, if I'm going to jump between different applications, um, I then have a present, either one or two presentation machines. And then I have a Telestrator machine. And the reason I do that is because now it sounds crazy and Chris is laughing at me, but what I will say is that, uh, it's shock and awe because what happens is, is when it goes into all of your, when it goes into your switcher, you're able to draw over things, I'm cutting in and out of presentations. I'm cutting in and out of it's. It, and the reason that I think I do it is because I work in. I've I've been backstage for these Fortune 10 or Fortune 100 events where you have a whole crew back there, and you're used to just going. I can jump to this, and I can jump to this, and I can jump to this, and and I, and I think I found it. I think it was the fact that I had seen what that looks like that makes it feel so clunky when I go, now I'm going to go out of my my keynote document and let me show you something. Now I'm going to go out of this. I want it to be like going, 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 going. And I want to have myself pop up where I want to pop up. I want to have all these things tied in. Uh, the reason I used, and I'm playing with the I, the whole process with the presentation. The reason I use two presentation machines is because in some of my presentations, all the simple, uh, I do all of my simple animations over top of me. So if I have a little object appears here and another object appears here and things something ties over and that's like a piece of glass in front of me that that is the graphics and I key that and then I um and then I have another one that is running the full frame stuff. So when I go to that one it goes full frame and it and it animates things and everything else. So so and then I can pop up in where I want to and so on and so forth. And so the so that's that's the reason I use two of them. It's a little tricky because you have to send the command to both of those. I'm using a, uh, I'm actually using a pickle. Uh, I'm using a, I'm using the uh, DSAN perfect queue for a lot of these so that I'm just going like this. And so it, because it has, and the main reason I use it is not, not because I need it, but because it, I can send the same command to both computers at the same time. So both of them are the full, um, uh, I tried doing it back and forth and I just can't remember what's next. So it's, it's easier for me to just do the, both of them as the full one. I am actually moving, I might be moving back to one, one keynote, but it's actually way harder to develop, which is that I'm going to start building all my keynotes with the full frame versions will have no black in them, no pure black in them. And then I can just do one and the, the ones that need to be, and I just key, it's a downstream key for the whole presentation. And it just, things appear where I want them to appear and then it just goes over. So it was a moment in time that I had two of them, but I think that I'd rather have one with no black or one with a, I really wish Keynote would do key fill out. Um, I've, uh, you know, everybody should go to Keynote, go up to feedback. There's a little feedback thing and go in there and type in, it would be great to have key fill output from Keynote. <laughs> like it already has it in the name. Anyway, so anyway, so the, uh, so the, um, so it would be, it'd be great to have that because that would solve a lot of my, my problems. Fair enough. Let's go to the next question. And I'm asking this question. It looks like the after SAG or SAG after strike is suspended as of today. Any news or details? 
I got all sorts of pings from friend of mine, friends of mine who work mm-hmm. in that industry. They are so glad that they may have solved this. It looks very close. Alex, what do you think? No, there's no details yet. I mean, we, we they're, so they're 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 supposed to come out tomorrow. So they're they're going to they're gonna go to vote tomorrow, and when they go out, we'll see the details. The one that everyone wants to know. I mean, I don't know. I, everyone I know wants to know is did SAG be able to grab onto a tax on every subscriber for the subscription services, which was just seemed way over the top and um, amazing if they get it. So, uh, so anyway, so that's what, that's the big one. Um, the other stuff is all stuff that can be worked, you know, usually malleable. Uh, it gives them something to go back to and, you know, but the numbers are thrown away as a billion dollar deal tells me that they probably did not get that deal or it was, or it was radically cut down because uh, it would have been just that alone would have been uh between one and a half and two and a half billion dollars over three years. So the fact that they're not call, running those numbers means that either it got eviscerated or taken out of the deal altogether because it, it was a big deal. Well, no, tomorrow, Mitchell. Alex, do you think that they calculate their losses against uh, the givebacks? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It's growing so fast. I, the other thing I'm interested in is just whether or not the IP rights to performances in the digital space, whether they managed to lock that down well enough so that, um, you know, we've we've talked here a lot about, yeah, yeah, that dialogue didn't come through clearly. Let's just let the AI thing go to work on you for, and then we'll replace it with yourself, but we won't pay anything extra yeah, the, for the, the problem is, and things like that. You have to remember that this is just the contract between those actors and the the folks that are signatories to the union. So what will happen is, is that all this stuff is going to be blowing up in the rest of the world and they won't be able and the and these and the companies with the signatories won't be able to do it. It doesn't mean it's going to stop it from happening. And so so the technology will just keep on building up. The the big thing was the getting a tax on every subscriber meant that the producers couldn't work around them, which um, you know, because what they what what Netflix could do very easily is go is take on the Apple model next next year, which is, and they've already started canceling lots of things, but cancel 80% of your, or 60% or even 50% of your productions and focus more money on those. Um, and then uh, and then build up a lot more stuff that's unscripted. You know, that's the that's the most common reaction that would, would happen if they, that's why the actors I think were trying to get a hook on the every subscriber as opposed to just the content that they, that they're part of because uh, Netflix and others can just change that that mix, that ratio. And, you know, basically it would be devastating to a lot of the below the line because there's we've never had a boom like this as far as production goes. I think that boom is probably over. You know, so I think that's what we're going to see next. I just hope we don't get more comedians in cars getting coffee and less lessons in chemistry because that would be exactly the opposite of what it, I'd like to see out there. I market. think we just focus all our money on trying to figure out how Nate Bargatze can do more stand-up. <laughs> Let's go to the next question. The best. And it's another QR code question. And wouldn't it be cool if we had a little ding ding for QR code questions? This one's from Jens Olson in Sandpoint, Idaho. Is it just me or have the fast switching for AirPod Pros gotten way, way better since the the last Mac OS and iOS releases? Alex, how do you feel about it? You didn't like this at first. Uh, I don't switch. So I don't let it switch. So I don't don't know. I... Uh, I pair my headsets to specifically to specific devices because I got so frustrated with this one thing. I don't want it to switch between things. I don't want it to look at the other things. I just, my biggest complaint right now is that with my my open comms, if someone calls me, even though I was just listening to them, it will automatically say, make me choose open comms again for that person coming in for the phone call. It is, and it's something Apple's doing and it's really frustrating. So, yeah. 
Jens, I actually think it has gotten better. I have two pairs of AirPod Pros because I walk every day. Plus, I do a lot of other things where I'm uh, in the same space as my wife. We're both working together on some projects. So um, I'm, I'm always switching back and forth between those two pairs. And I have had less problems, not problem-free. There is an occasional thing that happens with me where uh, I have to go in and, and re-download audiobooks and things like that because it's gotten a little confused in its intelligence. But generally speaking, no matter which pair I put in, the phone or my watch, which is more likely since I'm probably going out to exercise, figures out I'm using this pair of AirPods. I just want to connect to that. The other one's still in the case. It ignores that. And so it's gotten better in my experience. We'll see if it continues to evolve. Let's go to the next question. Thomas Jenkins is here from Clarksville asking Alex, did you know that there is a new Connections with James Burke on Curiosity Stream? Alex? No. Your favorite uh, no, I, I, of all time. So I'll definitely check it out. Uh, I, for those of you who don't know who James Burke is or Connections, uh, Connections is probably the best educational series. The Connections one made in 19, I don't know, 76 or something like that is still the best education content ever created in the history of the world. <laughs> like I just, like my, you know, it is, you should watch it. If you're an educator, it should be required viewing um, just to understand the proper delivery of educational material. When I talked to, I was going back and forth with Elton Brown about Good Eats, because that's to me one of, one of the top five uh, in this kind of thing. When I think about how to do education, I think about Good Eats, um, wh whether in apply it to other things, and connections and Alton Brown came back and said that that uh, he just he binged on connections and then connection you know good eats his connections um, you know applied to cooking food. so yeah to food so so James Burke is the is the really the OG of educational content of educational videos um, I'm I'm super excited about it the the budget uh, of the original connections was the largest budget that PBS had ever spent at that moment. Like it was a huge risk and it was a huge success. Um, but, but I, you know, my concern is always that what, what made that work was him going to all these places and being in all these places. And I'm going to guess that the curiosity, curiosity stream, I would love to see, I, I'm going to go look at it. Cause I mean, just listening to him talk is, is amazing. Like his ability to tie things together is unbelievable. Uh, I think the curiosity stream will be worth watching. You should definitely watch it. I'm going to go check it out. Um, I think that uh, I would love to see Apple give him all the money, you know, while he's still doing this and um, and just let him just go crazy. It'd be really fun. Yeah. Next question. And it's a QR code question coming in from Andre Dole in Berlin. We've got a request for supporting a hybrid event based on WebEx. Is WebEx kind of production ready, especially regarding two languages, integration of simultaneous interpreters? We also have to include a live music act. Alex? Not really. I mean, it. so what I will say about uh, WebEx is that it is dramatically better than it was a year ago or two years ago. Like the, they are the fastest moving web, you know, uh, you know uh, virtual conferencing software but they came from a long way back. They were, <laughs> so they were, they were basically ridiculed for uh, by us for a long time, a decade of how bad WebEx was. It was like the epitome of everything that was wrong with with virtual conferencing. And now they, whatever happened during COVID, I think they just got, you know, they just got tired of everyone making fun of them, especially when it mattered. They probably lost a billion dollars of opportunity. Um, they put a lot of money into it, and it looks much, much better. 
what it doesn't have when it comes to really doing great productions is all the stuff that that liminal added to zoom so you know no one else does so like if you're doing a hybrid event it's kind of to me it's absurd and weird to do anything other than zoom just because zoom has all the tools that you need to do this you know and so um and so the, and i'm not talking about zoom events or any of that stuff i'm just talking about the liminal being able to pull things out and put them where they need to be uh, if these other companies started adding those things, it would start to become a fair fight, but it isn't right now. Um, and so, you know, the, as far as the languaging, I don't know how they manage multiple languages. Zoom does that actually fairly well. Um, but I mean, you'll be able to, I'm sure you'll be able to limp through something here, but it's not going to be, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to be the same you know, as, what, as what we see with uh, Zoom implementation. Mitchell. Isn't WebEx sort of uh, the gold standard for most broadcasters? They have the most hooks uh, no. into it for using it? Skype. Skype, Skype is because is. they built a hardware box. So by, Skype built the the TX boxes, the 100s and the 400s, and and they uh, we I have I used to have six of them. Um, and uh, Skype is the probably the most known for that uh, because the because of the hardware integration, you could slide a one U in, and it had SDI in and SDI out, and everybody just bought bought into them. And that's probably the the most one. We don't see. I mean, WebEx is trying to get into that, but WebEx is not definitely not a major player in broadcast. They seem to be doing a great job of marketing to people like mm -hmm. CNN because that's all you see. Somebody paid somebody a bunch of money to do that or gave a bunch of support. Yeah. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, uh, Nigel, you mentioned PMI certified persons. Did you mean PMP? Nigel, what say you? Uh, yes and no is the answer to that question. Uh, the PMI, the Project Management Institute, is a great place to get your PMP certification, but it's also a great place to become part of a community. So when I look for professional project managers, one of the things I tend to look at is are they involved in their PMI chapters and stuff because it's a community and it's a learning like many other things, but the pure certification, which you can get from lots of people, is PMP. There you go. Thanks for the clarification. Let's go to the next question. John Wallace uh, from Michigan uh, asked, best hardware mixer for 5.1 Dolby Atmos? Um... Alex, I'm surprised you didn't raise your hand on this. I meant to. I know you, Sorry, I was, yeah. I was actually doing research for it. <laughs> That's perfectly all right. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so the, um, uh, the ones that we've used in the past, I mean, most, I will say that most of the broadcasts that I've worked on that have been, that have been surround, and they've been really at most folded down to 5.1 or 5.1, um, have been done, the, the larger music-oriented ones have actually been Pro Tools that have been, that has then been fed back down to it. Some idiosyncrasies there. I don't think Pro Tools is really built for that. Um, but it works really well. There's a tons of control and and it sounded, you know, like if you look at well, anyway, I can't say this. Anyway, so so the um, but that one that works fairly well with a really well built system to make that actually work. Um, the other ones that we've, you know, that we've done some work with are Digicos. Um, I know that Calrec also has some really high, high-end ones. As far as minimum viable product, um, the one that we've used for smaller events that are 5.1, that it's a little bit more affordable is the QL1. So the QL1 is something that we've, um, that we've used for a variety of, of sizes of, of surround. Um, so, so those are the things that you, um, that you need. And that's the, you know, to do the mix. Um, you can deliver at this point, um, 
you know, it used to be that you had to wrap these, you know, you had to wrap your into to, to, to send it out, to send it out as an EAC3, you need to wrap it with a linear, linear acoustics 5291. That's no longer really necessary if you use the, if you're using the elemental pipeline. So if you send raw tracks into either an elemental appliance or into the cloud, um, you can, you can wrap it into an EAC3 um, in, uh, you know, in the elemental uh, software or hardware. Next question. From Matthias Utila from Helsinki, Finland, looking for a small video mixer and monitor that can record program and also output it via the USB to be used as a webcam. Like an A10 Mini Extreme is too much, by the way, with two USB ports for both recording and webcam outputs. Any options? Nigel. Well, uh, yes, the problem with it, that thing was the two outputs, the Extreme rather moved you into that category. I would say uh, look at Roland. Um, I use one of these Roland UVC O2s when I just go out on my own uh, and I'm traveling and I want to take a little mix from Madonna, unplug all my uh, my Blackmagic stuff, and I find this great. But again, it's not going to have the two outputs. It's going to have one USB output. It also has this very annoying square USB output, which I don't like very much. But um, either way, uh, look at the Roland line. You might find, but I think you're going to find the two USB outputs of where you end up going back to the extreme. USB device connection. I haven't had one of those in a little bit of time, but they worked fine. Mitchell? Yeah, Roland is nice, as Nigel says. I also saw a device, uh, and I'm not 100% sure if it has the two outputs on it, that Caleb Pike over at DSLR Shooter had cobbled together. It's uh, kind of a small thing, but it mixes, switches, and sends stuff out, and it does everything all nicely uh, wrapped up in one little device. So check it out, DSLR Shooter. Let's go to the next question. Next one from Cindy Drozda in Erie, Colorado. Bill, I also have a problem with mouth clicks. What are you using for a solution to this problem? Hi, Cindy. I know you do a lot of live stuff, and I, ha I don't have a great solution for live because that's harder. If you're recording and playing back, most of us use Isotope RX, and it has a brilliantly executed mouth declick specialist plugin. It also has a regular declick, and I think they're meant for two different things because sometimes clicks are switching transients and things like that. I know a lot of people who do work in video, uh, they're obsessive about whenever they cut dialogue, they make sure that they go back in and put little fade handles uh, every cut so they don't get the click of the transient of the waveform just disappearing or, or hitting hard. But mouth declicks are the special thing, and Isotope has a specialist post-processing thing. So I run everything that I do for the audiobooks and everything else through Mike to Clicks. It usually found, finds 30 to 40,000 of them in a typical file for me. So I'm really glad it's automated. Uh, Mitchell, you have a quick, quick yeah, pop Yeah, Cindy, um, not to be funny boy, but uh, the solution is water. <laughs> well, Cindy is, is surrounded by sawdust, so that may be tough for her. She may be breathing in a lot of dust and that, who knows. Anyway, Thanks, Cindy, for the question. Uh, we're almost at the top of the hour here. So some coming events. The show workshop happens every Tuesday at uh, 12 noon Pacific Standard Time. So if you're interested in getting in involved with the show, it's a great place to show up, meet some of the people kind of on the back end and uh, get your training begun there for being a, a closer part of office hours. Uh, the Squares TV Lab with Michael Forrest is Wednesdays. That happens at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So if you're interested in that application, which is really cool, uh, 
learn how to integrate Shoot Pro webcam, video pencil, beat sheet, iOS and Mac based stuff. So there's a lot of great information that comes in that. Um, the Isadora Lab is still going. Isadora, the show control routine software, L. Wilson Sparrow has been doing a lab on it. It is an incredible opportunity to learn how that, and a lot of the Office Hours show is built on the kind of the Isadora platform. So if you're looking for a really high level uh, control protocol thing, that's where you want to go. Um, also, don't forget, tomorrow's show, building a multi-view tool for NDI. Uh, Elias Brunenen will be taking us through the process of how he built a multi-view for NDI from scratch. He's going to be here to answer questions about the pr entire process from concept, coding, cross-platform, rewriting to testing. So that all happens on tomorrow's show. Um, and in just a couple of minutes here, I'm a little tiny bit early, so I'll just say I'm very excited to talk to you about the Final Cut uh, Creative Summit that I was just back from. Uh, that'll be coming up here in our second hour in about three seconds. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our second hour. For those of you who come, we are going to be talking about the Final Cut Pro Creative Summit that just took place in Cupertino, California. Uh, it was three days of a lot of fun. It's kind of the old home week for a lot of us who have been using Final Cut for a long time. And for those of you who don't use Final Cut, I, one of the things that I did as kind of my top level of what should I be talking about today was to try to extract some generic lessons from conferences about what some of these people who are, uh, some of the presenters are very much forward-looking. They're creating content, they're on YouTube, they're doing traditional video production, some of them working on major television and, and movies and things like that. So there's a pretty wide group of people. And some of them were talking about how to use the software specifically. Others were talking about more generic things. And I went in with the idea that I was going to try to bring back to office hours here some generic uh, lessons that I learned from being there on site. So we'll talk about that a little. I've got a bit of a slide presentation here for you. It won't go too far, but I thought I'd take you kind of along with me. I took some pictures while I was there. So... Uh, this is the Creative Summit for our recap. And the very first day, um, I, Justine, and Nick Haruz, and Nick was in charge of the programs, and she did the opening keynote. And it was really an interesting keynote. I learned a lot. She's such an amazing presenter. I mean, as you can see from the top of the slide, she has 7.8 million followers, uh, over a billion views on her YouTube channels. She talked, and uh, this is one of the most interesting things, people were very interested in social media. So she talked about how she works with various social channels, not just one. But she was very clear about she has a strategy for taking content from one social platform and repurposing it into other platforms and what the rules are that she kind of follows for making that a success. I think a lot of people in the audience were wrapped with watching her do that. Then uh, in the afternoon, well, right after that, uh, iPad. And this was one of the big themes. Uh, Apple has just launched uh, Final Cut for iOS maybe seven, eight months ago or maybe a little quicker than that. There was a lot of discussion. So the entire second thing was uh, Chris Lawley doing a very deep dive into iPad OS. Now, he had a, has 172,000 uh, subscribers, not anywhere near it, uh, Justine's level, but he does his entire workflow on iPad. 
I mean, literally, he said, I do not own a laptop or a desktop computer anymore. So he is able to do all of his social media uh, work, build his audience, and run it entirely on iPad. I thought that was really a fascinating kind of talk through. And he explained the whole process. He showed us. He did live editing there. So it was interesting to see what's possible and what I'm not used to. Next thing we did was take off for Apple. This is what everybody was looking forward to, getting a chance to meet the Final Cut Pro uh, creation team and see some of the spaceship. Uh, in the past, we've always done it at a different facility. This is the first year they let us actually into at least uh, the, the main outer ring buildings. We didn't get into the inside for this one. But you can see that there was a big um, discussion with the team they gave us a presentation. Now, I couldn't take any photos or anything inside the presentations, but I could. They said we could talk about it and summarize. So I did a slide here, and I know there's a lot of things on there, and I'm sorry there's a whole bunch of mice type in here. But the first thing they talked about was just the M3s that had just been released and exactly what they do. So um, things like 48 streams of ProRes 442 right out of these laptops. And they were specifically talking about the MacBook Pros. So they weren't talking that, about the four, studios or the... Was that 442 or 422 or 444? I just haven't seen 442. ProRes 4... They said specifically 48 streams of ProRes 442 was this big number. Now, that doesn't mean you won't get a lot of they, other but streams. But I'm saying it's really 4... 442, not 444 or 422? Like it's, I've never seen, I'm just, I'm no, just no, curious. No, 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 you're probably right. I probably typed that wrong. 422. Okay, okay got it. I, okay. I'll go back and check my notes. I, I, was like, I, was trying, I was like, what does that mean? Like, how would you do that? Like, it would cause for, all yeah. kinds of, there'd be a bunch of chromatic right, aberration that would occur there that would be really, like, I was just like, what is going on? I, that, that was going to be the I got to tell you, we week. couldn't take anything in there, and I'm going to switch back to my camera for just, I couldn't take anything in there. So I went back old school. And my, I've been using it for 30 years, notepad oh, with funny. a pencil. Oh, there you go. <laughs> okay, how good. I had to do all this because <laughs> anyway, we had promised to leave all of our electronics in our pockets right. for this. Uh, so anyway, I probably just in, all good. In, all good. trying to scroll yeah. it all down there. Um, Thousand nits out of the new laptops, a sixteen hundred nits peak. So they those new screens, I guess, are very good. Uh, battery life up to twenty two hours. It was interesting. They did a lot of. We did this movie, and we were involved in this big television show, and the rest of that. The one that I wrote down is Fitness Plus, only because I've been looking at that occasionally, and they're doing a lot of content. They're doing fifteen hours of content every week, and they're doing it all on Final Cut. And they were just talking a little bit about the workflow to do that. It's 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 what. The reason a lot of us like it, it's just such an efficient production platform. Then they went into this list on the bottom, the near future of Final Cut. They are about to, to let 10.7 out of the gates. They haven't quite yet. But these are the six things that I think they highlighted here. And I have three of them in blue. And I'm going to talk just a little bit about the three of them that I've got listed here in blue because um, – these are the things that I think are going to be really important as we go through that. So I'm going to come back to just me here, and I don't think I'm going to be able to read that from down there. So I'm going to hold up my iPad and make sure I cover the things that I wanted to talk about. First thing they talked about was a scrolling timeline. People have been talking about that. And I found some interesting lessons in why they haven't done it. People have been asking for this for 10 years. And so you're going, why didn't they just make it scroll? And it turns out there's a lot going on behind the scenes that maybe you didn't realize they had to figure out. Um, 
here's how it works. What they showed us was that the timeline cursor essentially stays centered when you're playing your timeline. And so the timeline is scrolling past, but it's more complex than that in terms of the fact that you can pause something to make a change or something like that. As you unpause it, it accelerates to get you back until the timeline is centered, and then it slows down as you're coming in there. It's a lot of coding, and it seems like it's kind of silly. Why did you put all this time into it? But there were really good reasons for it. It's really all about keeping the user focused at the center of the timeline, no matter how fast or how slow you're playing back your program. And I had an interesting experience after I saw this. The next day, everybody was talking about it online. And a friend of mine from the webs, Joe Marler, who's a very, very, very smart um, technologist in this area, was talking about they could probably do this for the last 10 years. What they couldn't do was do it smoothly and accurately without messing up other things. They could have implemented it, but it would have made Final Cut choppier. And Joe had a really interesting take on all of this code. They really needed chips that were this fast to make it an experience that they thought Final Cut editors wouldn't struggle with, they would love using. So really, until this new M3 series, that's why they haven't done a scrolling timeline. They didn't think they could do it in an Apple-like fashion. Um, basically, prior to the M series chip, scrolling the complexity of a magnetic timeline would have slowed down all the operations, and it would have made the software sluggish. And they just were not willing to deal with that. They wanted the experience for editors to be as smooth and unobtrusive as possible. So they took something that they could have done earlier and held it off a long time. They needed the M-series powers to pull it off. They needed the high-precision waveforms to redraw so quickly that it wouldn't slow you up at all. They wanted to manage um, all the magnetic clip connections and be able to display those as this moving timeline uh, was moving at whatever speed you wanted it to. And they, they talked specifically about keeping roles interdependency cleared. Uh, so there were a lot of things behind the thing. So it, it's not that they just don't want to do something sometimes. I really got the feeling that the team building Final Cut, one of the things they think about is if we add this feature, what will how will it impact the user experience? People love the software because it's so fast and fluid. And are we giving them something that's going to be nice for a group of their users, but it's really going to change the nature of the experience with the program? And they're very sensitive to that. Next thing I, t I highlighted in blue there was collapse to connected storyline. This was really interesting for me particularly. It's all about gap clips and gap clip management, and I didn't understand that. So, uh, Chris, I know you were talking about this beforehand. We have a thing in Final Cut called secondary storylines, and that is there's a primary storyline that works magnetically. Everything attaches to that primary storyline so that when you move a fundamental asset from the primary storyline to somewhere else, everything that's magnetically connected to it goes with it. It allows you kind of as a Final Cut editor to work vertically as well as horizontally. You can fix together stacks of clips, subclips, titles, other things. And because they are magnetically attached, when you move the base clip, everything goes with it. It is super convenient if you're trying to rev a section. Let's say that you've decided to do this topic and then this topic and then this topic. And then your client said, you know, we should take the third topic and put it where the second one is and then move the second one down to where the third one is. In a lot of things, you have to 
a lot of traditional editors, you have to grab the entire stack and move it as a unit. In Final Cut, you just grab the primary storyline clip that's connected to and move it someplace else, and everything you've built into exact time relationships above it, just move with it. So it saved me hours of time in doing revisions with clients, and they didn't want to mess up with that. So the other thing you can do is when you do a secondary storyline, you can collapse it down into the primary. And one of the things they talked to us about, which I thought was really interesting, when you do that, the clips that are in a secondary storyline tend to, to re replace the ones on your primary storyline. But they said gap clips are a problem with that. If you've built something on the primary and you're pushing down the secondary and the secondary has gaps in it, the user really probably doesn't want those gaps to replace content that they've built. So they had to reimagine what a gap clip does when it's combined with the primary storyline. And so now they've rewritten that code so that gap clips, which are kind of like empty space in a way, don't affect the primary when they're merged into the primary. And I think that's another little example of how thinking about how an editor would want something to work. I want the gap clips because they're very useful in Final Cut. In fact, incredibly useful. Uh, I use gap clips tons because unlike a regular timeline, it's not just an empty space, it's a thing. It may show up as black, but it has dimension, it has duration. You can click on a gap clip and change its duration precisely to 2.75 seconds, and that's exactly what it'll be. And then that becomes an attribute of the clip that you can copy and paste to other clips if you want to keep all the gaps consistent. So it has a lot of things. Also, in the timeline index, it's a thing that Final Cut has where you can go through and you can literally sort and grab all of your gap clips. So if I'm working on an audiobook and I have a 10-hour timeline, and, and for some reason the producer says to me, right now they're one second, and we've decided that's too short. We want every gap in this entire 10-hour book to be a second and a half. That's literally a process where you can do it in the timeline index, sort it, get all your gaps together, select them all, type in Command-D 1.5, and hit return, and every single gap clip in the entire 10 hours of your program becomes 1.5 seconds instead of one. You can imagine the amount of time that kind of thing saves you as you're doing that. They also needed to do this collapse in a way that preserves things like JNL cuts, which editors use constantly. So if they're doing an L cut where the the video is changing before the audio changes, or a J cut where you want to change the audio to a secondary character before you see that secondary character, when you collapse these it has to preserve that. These are the kind of things they've been working on all that time. So it's some of the reasons that it took a long time to do this, and these these should be really useful. The last of the three I'll talk about very briefly is dupe detection. Uh, I almost laughed out loud because I've got all friends all over the world who've been going, why can't you give us dupe detection? And it's been years, and everybody's been screaming for it. Now I kind of understand what the team was thinking about back there in doing that, and it's because at least in part, of a thing that we've all been experiencing, which is bigger rasters on our cameras, such that if you do a three-person panel shoot, and you say to yourself, I shot this in 4K or 8K or 12K, I, what I really want to do is take that clip 
and I want to punch in on the person on the left, and then I want to, in the next scene, punch in on the person on the right. I don't just want to use this the way we used to use it. It's a clip. I need to use it that way. How do you handle dupe detection in a world where you're using the same clip multiple times for different purposes? Is that a dupe? In the timeline, should I show it as duplicate? It's the same exact clip, but I'm using it in three separate instances. Are you going to bother me by putting those hash marks on it to say that it's a dupe and then make me go back and figure out which one I wanted? Is it really a dupe or is it something like what I just described, a push in for an effect? So they've built a system where now the dupe detection shows up in your timeline index and it coalesces those different versions of the same clip together in such a way that you can pop through them and make a very quick decision on is this a real duplicate that I don't want to use twice in my in my timeline or is this two separate instances that I choose to use in my timeline for different purposes like the wide medium and close up so they've put a lot of intelligence into thinking about how to make these changes so that they have an impact on an editor's real life. Going back to my presentation, so now I'm going to get out of those are kind of some of the details that I saw when they showed us a, a live demonstration of the new timeline. I'm going to come to my next thing. Why did I go to the Creative Summit myself? And this will tell you kind of my orientation for theirs. First and foremost, I had seen two or three things about a function in Final Cut called roles. Roles, Chris and I have been talking about this a little bit, talked about it a little bit before the show. It's an incredibly powerful thing that is probably way underused. It is a way to tag assets in Final Cut and assign them me additional metadata. I'm using roles a ton in the audiobook, the work that I'm doing. And one of the things, and this is just a you know, one secondary use for them. But I'm tagging all my characters as I go through and do a piece of dialogue from Mary. And I may do, you know, 10 of those in the first chapter, but then I may not do more until the seventh chapter and the 15th chapter. Wouldn't it be great to be able to coalesce all the versions of the character Mary and then work on her by herself as opposed to any of the other 40 characters I have to do. And by assigning roles to clips, you can do things like that. It's a very powerful thing. So I went to every single thing that said roles <laughs> in the session, and I paid real close attention, and I learned a ton about it. The reason I did in part is because roles also lives in Final Cut Pro for iPad. So as they build out this new environment, uh, we're seeing more and more cross-platform or cross-pollination of ideas from Final Cut on the desktop to Final Cut. And so mobile was my second thing. I want to learn what they're doing in the mobile editing space because there's so much development there. And because I'm just still learning. I mean, I've been in Final Cut now for, gosh, 12 years plus, and I was a Final Cut editor in the before the 10 transition before that. That's part of why I went to... The creative summit to do those things there's one more thing i went to and that was just to see people because i gotta tell you i when you're working alone as an editor and we all have to do that knowing people that you can call and just say i'm really frustrated this isn't working right and i think all of the connections i've got in my final cut uh group of people that i work with have come out of going to these shows in the past it's very important all right uh i'm gonna do now my top five things i took away 
And for those of you who are not Final Cut editors, hopefully at least a couple of these are going to be useful to you. Uh, these are my takeaways from the summit. First and foremost, and I can't say who, who this one came from, but someone did say from the Apple team, this is the beginning of the future for Final Cut Pro for both Mac and iPad. What they showed me, what they showed us was that it's not that the two are going to become one thing. They're still going to be separate things. But I thought that was a little tip off that I should start paying attention to both versions, that development is going to happen in both things, and that this is going to be increasingly an important way to look at editing. Now, the next one, number four, so that was my fifth most important, Andy Toe. Not the Andy Tao that we see on the show here, but Andy Toe is a YouTube influencer. And boy, what a nice guy. I enjoyed just, I got the chance to talk to him. And he works out of uh, the Pacific Rim. And, and he's just, he showed us his work. Apple's really high on him. And he just did a brilliant job. But um, I was so impressed because he said, I'm up here on stage, but I really want to learn from you guys. So please come up to me. Let's talk about what you've been doing. I want to learn lessons from the people who have been around a long time using this software. I just found that to be so impressive. And he did. He was open and engaged with everybody. Somebody who's making a lot of money and doing, you know, an incredible amount of work was still hungry to talk to people and engage. And I just think that's a lesson for everybody, no matter where you are in your industry. You go and you don't say, I'm the important guy on stage. You go and you say, what can I learn from everybody around me? Great guy. Just truly enjoyed talking to him. Uh, number three on my top five, Jen Jager, who was one of the presenters there. She was talking in first part of her presentation about not losing the joy of creating. And I got to tell you, the one thing that Final Cut has always done for me, it makes me happy to edit in it. I can tell I'm saving time. I can tell I'm away from the mechanics of editing. And I've gotten to know the program so well that I'm just fluidly enjoying creating something. And that's exactly what she was talking about. Don't get tied up. She was talking about being on big sets with, you know, high dollar commercials. And she told the story of, I learned to do air AirPlay share onto an iPad for the clients, and I gave it to them, and it kept them out of my hair. And I almost just fell apart laughing because I've had the exact same experience on a set. It's just these tools really allow you to focus on what you need to do. Number two was our friend Justine. Um, this is a paraphrase, too, but it was very close to what she said. If you aren't willing to be uncomfortable then you aren't willing to grow. And I think that's a really good statement for everybody who works in the creative arts at all. It does make you crazy that they change things and you got to switch this and switch that. But she was talking about her early days when she was literally trying to figure out what to do on her YouTube channel. And she came up with, the, you know, when I was the least comfortable because I was working way outside of my comfort zone, that's when I learned the most, I believe this. And I saved the last one, my number one tip, came from one of my longtime friends in there. And um, it was Steve Martin of Ripple Training. And he said this, people who know how will always work. And I thought that was the end of it, but it's the second part of what he said. People who know how will always work for the people who know why. I can't tell you the number of times I have experienced this same thing. You can learn to push the buttons and learn how to do J cuts and L cuts and the rest of this. But you don't really get good at things until you understand why 
you're doing these things, whether it's a small project or a large project. I found in my practice, if I can't articulate why I'm doing an edit, maybe I ought to rethink doing it. You shouldn't do them randomly. You should do them because it makes sense in achieving a goal with the program. So here's a shot I took out the window of the plane on my way back, just like the shot that opened. I'm heading home from this. I had a great time. It was really fabulous. And so I'm going to now open it up to questions. We have other people in the Mitchell is the first in the list here. Mitchell? Bill, thanks so much for your report. I appreciate it. Could you mind holding up your laminate? Because I want to see what's at the other end of the... Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> they have the coolest... There, that's nice. <laughs> yes, this was the official you can get into the thing. It is... Uh, it's a laminate. It's got a little cutout. It's got a gradient apple on it. It's it's very cool. I'm so, a huge yeah. uh, collectors of those. And the other thing is that I, I haven't come back to Final Cut. Maybe someday I will. Um, but would it be worthwhile for somebody that's a total noob uh, with the new version of Final Cut to go back to a summit like that? I think, I don't know. I find them fascinating. If nothing else, it gives you an a window into what the company is thinking about at the highest level. Where are they going? The, the big themes, this not a complete confluence, but how mobile and Final Cut for iPad is a heavy development thing there. It is going to be a feeder for and an association with main Final Cut, which is hugely capable. But Right now, the iPad version isn't as capable. It's a subset of the capabilities in the big one. And I'm not sure I'm ever going to want it to completely replace it because I'll always have access. And, and they talked very specifically about, yes, Apple is still very interested. Some people came up and go, are you going to do what you did with Motion? Or not Motion, but um, oh, what was the tool they just sure, or, uh, deprecated? Um, Aperture. Aperture, thank you. Are you going to aperturize Final Cut? Are you going away? Are you going to not change anything? Is it going to die? And they were just very clear. No, not at all. That's one question they would answer very directly. They have at least quite a few more years on their roadmap to where it's going to go, and they want it to be there, and they want it to remain robust. They will do things like they did now. I know everybody wishes that it would evolve faster, but... One example for me was that what I told you about the hardware wasn't ready to do this feature right. And they they probably had those those machines for five years back there. They knew where their their simulation of the next generation chips were going to be and what could be possible five years from now when those chips get in the field and are actually used, well, this was the year that the M3 allowed them to actually do things like the scrolling timeline in a fashion that they thought was very Final Cut-like so people can not have to worry about it not performing well. So those are those are just some thoughts from me. Anything else, Mitchell, or let's go to Alex. Alex. Yeah, I'm, I think that you know, I've often said that I think that Apple does what 90% of the people want 90% of the time. Like that's that's their like that's, that's their fair. business model. It's not what ten percent want to, people want to do ten percent of the time, or one percent wants to do one hundred percent of the time. It's ninety ninety, and and I think that Final Cut I think expresses that in the sense that um, you know when you look at the updates that they did this week, it's really focused on what do most people need to be more efficient at what they do on a day to day basis, not like folks like me that I know that. I'm sure Steve did a great job on the HDR stuff, but you know, like if, if for those of us who do HDR, we're like, we're going to use Resolve for that, you sure. know? And so, and so the thing is, is that, and, and I think that, um, uh, but I think that they, 
I, I definitely think that they see a weakness in the market related specifically to social media. Social media is a huge part of the pyramid. You know, when we think about the pyramid, uh, I think about the pyramid a lot, which is, you know, the, the production that, that I live in is like, it's barely the tip of the pyramid. You know, like it's just, it's like the little, little, little like pixel at the top of what we do um, as far as obscure, weird stuff that you need to get done. And then there's production that lives and, and lives way up there. And and literally, I think that Avid is like the top 1% of the pyramid, you know, and it owns that, you know, and Resolve takes over a little bit more below that. Um, and the, but what I would say is that, uh, that there's this huge gap in between that. And I think that when you talk about social media, I think you're talking about like there are, you know, there's cost considerations. And so that's what gets people into Resolve, but it also gets into Final Cut because you pay $300 once, you're not paying a subscription. It's easy to do things fast. Um, and there, I, I did see them kind of working through that. People like me are not satisfied with that. Uh, you know, like we want to see more, you know, like more of the high-end tools, but I, I've grown to understand it. I do think it's important. I think Apple's going to keep Final Cut around. And I think that part of the reason for that is that they do need a piece of software that they can control that can develop content for the Vision. And I think I think the Vision Pro is a big part of Apple's future. And I think they need to be able to control that. They can't wait for Resolve to get around to it or conjole Adobe to do something. They need to be able to have their own, um, you know, control over their own destiny. And so I think that they'll keep it around forever because of that. Um, I think, I still feel like we've seen so few features because I, I feel like when we see the vision come out, they're gonna go, hey, there's a new, I don't know any, I don't have any information, but I just feel like they have 3D, they have immersive stuff in there. And I think they got that immersive stuff to do things with. And I think that that's, you know, I think that's there. Did they talk at all, Bill, about um, uh, motion? I heard some people talking about it. Again, I had a very limited period of time. I was only there for mm -hmm. a day and a half. I wish I could have stayed for the, for were, the were there any, three days. Were there any things about motion? Or were there any well, sessions? Well, yeah, there was, there was discussion and talk about it. Um, I think some of the motion people are still in the, when are you going to really do something significant? Well, um, I, I don't even know it's significant. I think as a motion user, I think that the, the thing that I'm mostly interested in is when are you going to put it on the website with all the other Apple apps? Like that is a... <laughs> <laughs> you know, Motion and Compressor were notably left out of like, they, I mean, they have every little ma Apple app on their Apple page except for those two. And that has a bunch of us just like, should I keep doing this? <laughs> you know, know, like that's the, know. you know, like that's the, that's the scary part. It's not so much. You, you not, would have loved to be there when the Apple team and the, the final day of the summit, the Apple team was on stage. They asked again, not no, uh, no video or audio or anything else and they had an open and question and answer and i i would imagine somebody might have asked that i had had to leave before that but it was the time to say what about this problem that's right. gnawing right. at me and and right. they were at least there accountable and and standing up right. i didn't go to that so i didn't know if they addressed motion as a product in there so sorry about that yeah. got it nigel yeah i'm i'm interested in the apple um strategy around the ipad so I, I'm a mm. Final Cut user that is, you know, semi-talented, not that talented. When I use it, I use it because I have a quick thing I need to do. I don't, I don't claim to be at the, the level that you guys are. And I'm staring at the iPad application, and the sort of the two questions I have, which I'm fairly willing to bet they didn't answer, but you may have got a sense of, is how is the adoption going? For the iPad, I mean, once we all played with it, and then it was five bucks a month, and I went, ah, I'm just not going to use it for three months, so I'm, I'll pay for it when I need it, and I never did. So, how is the adopt? Did you get any sense of how the adoption is going outside the marquee? Hey, 
I, I use it and I'm important. What's the real adoption like? And secondly, when they talk, do you get a sense that the budget and focus and the thing they're most excited about is the iPad product or or the Mac product or it's not clear to determine? So my two cents, purely inside of myself, is that Apple as a large company one of their most important things was the development of the M-series chips. It changed everything, hardware, performance, costs, everything. That chip fab changeover was massive. And now this to being there and seeing the M3 released a day before, seeing that in the case of... Um, Final Cut Pro for iPad, you need a specific level of iPad Pro to run it. It has to have those fast chips in it to make it work. Um, you know, they've always deprecated the old stuff and moved you to the new stuff. So it, it seems to me that they are all in on developing for a more agile workflow for people. The fact that they had the social media creators did, and there were a surprising number of young people. You know, I've been to this, so many of these, and generally those of us who are editors who want to spend this kind of money at things, in the past, you were talking 45, 50 and up because you had to have expensive computers and you had to really dedicate yourself. You wanted to be a video editor. We all know that social media is changing all that and people are editing off their phones and shooting off their phones. And so the young people that were there, the, the Andy Toes, uh, Justine's in kind of that category too. Um, Trevor Horton was there. I mean, just people that I know who are in their under 35 grouping and are coming to Final Cut probably for these social things was a significant presence at this creative summit and they weren't before. So if nothing else, if Apple, like every other marketing company, says we need to get people young and early, get them into our ecosystem and then let them grow to be the next generation, boy, I think they're they're whatever they're doing in that respect, it seems to be working to me. It didn't seem like your granddad's uh, edit NLE at all. It seemed like it was, and Alex has said this, it's, it seems like it's very big and social quick turnaround and that it's it's killing it out there. And they're leaning into that. That's what they want for the future of their software. Chris. Yeah, sorry. There might be some noise downstairs. Sound like <clears throat> somebody's trying to break all the dishes. Bill, were you were, were you implying that dupe detection came out a year ago? Yeah. It's, it's, I find it perplexing that they're bragging about it today. Uh, are, are you saying that they've reworked dupe detection so that it doesn't just look for a recurrence of the clip or frames, but also the pixels. Like if I've reframed for this close-up, is it not going to show me as a duplicate clip if I use different pixels from the same clip? Yeah, they're not solving it the way that you think they might solve it. It's not telling you what they're. What they have done is that dupes, where it used to show up for the last year and a half with just a hashtag across because this clip has been used somewhere before. They've increased the intelligence, probably using machine learning or something like that. And now in your timeline index, that's where the indicator of 
clips that appear to be duped are, and you can step through them in the timeline index and make a decision rapidly and easily by just going between them as to whether or not this clip is an actual dupe of a clip or whether you've used multiple instances of the same clip for something like that push-in thing I described. So it's not that it's automatically telling you, hey, this clip is somewhere else in the timeline. That's what it used to do. Now it's giving you a new area to go through and make the quick decision about, did I use this correct or is this actually, I've used the same clip twice and I need to get rid of one of them or pop it out of the timeline, leave a gap clip there to fix it later. So what so, you're saying is that in the timeline index, I can sort by just show me duplicate clips. It'll show you the duplicate. Yeah, it'll show you what, what it, what it okay. thinks is the same base clip. And okay. then you can make the decision, no, I've used that with intent multiple times. It's not a real dupe. It's a dupe that I want. Okay. I think that pushes us through all of those questions. Uh, it looks like we have a good handful. And we also, uh, so Mitch, what do we got? Oh, we got another one coming in from Tlaloc Lopez Waterman from Galisteo, New Mexico. Bill, I'm excited. This is one of those second hours that is going over my head. Could you define some of the terms you're using? Primarily secondary, storyline, gap clips, et cetera. Sure. Let me go through those. Um, and, and I'm sorry about doing that. I, I, I tend to fall into the, the I know Final Cut, so everybody else should too. I was, I was hoping I wasn't going to do too much of that. So your primary storyline, Final Cut has what is called a magnetic timeline. It's unlike any other NLE in that it has a primary track down the middle. It's kind of a darker gray than everything else. And that in that primary storyline, which is your central workspace, magnetism is always on. And that means that anything you put into that is going to attach itself to the clip before and after it magnetically with no spaces. It, it ends up, it, in the early days, we thought it was just you didn't want uh, flash frames and things like that, so it attaches it. But it turns out that it's way more powerful than that because that magnetic nature of the timeline means that you can do things like use gap clips. And what a, what a so that's your primary storyline is that dark gray thing. If you put a clip above it in what would be another track in another NLE. In Final Cut terms, that isn't another track. That is just a general area, and it attaches to the clip in the primary through a little magnetic tail. And you can build vertically stacks of things. So if you've got a shot and you say, the sound effect for that shot has to happen right now, and the title I want to come in right now, and there should be a second window with a second shot, and that should come in right now, you build all those things vertically, but they are all attached to these little tails to your primary storyline clip. That is what enables this incredible fast ability to reorder scenes. Because if I take the clip off the primary storyline and move it three minutes down my timeline, all the work I've done creating those synchronized relationships just moves with it. And I know editors like uh, Thomas Grove Carter in London who did uh, Ed Sheeran's uh, Castle on the Hill video, and he shows how he, how he could just, with working with the director, just move blocks around and everything would work beautifully and there's you'd not messing up any sync relationships because they're, they're there. They're, they're connected magnetically to each other. Now, a gap clip, I think, is a fascinating thing. 
in most NLEs, if you have a shot on this part of your timeline and another one down here on this part of your timeline, what's in between is blank. It's nothing. It plays back as black, but it's just there's nothing there. In the magnetic assembly of Final Cut, you have a thing called a gap clip. It's easy to just hit a thing and pop it into your timeline, and it comes in with a default duration. But because it is an actual thing on your timeline, not just a space, it has attributes. One attribute it has is duration. So I made the point of um, if you have dozens of them, you can go into the timeline index, which lists every single thing in your magnetic timeline, one or another, and you can sort it and say, I want to get all my gaps, I want to select them, and I want to change their duration all at once. And so changing all of those gap clips might be a, a batch operation rather than having to go fiddle with each one. Gaps also, because they are things instead of nothingness, you can attach other things to them. So you can attach titles or you could attach a piece of video to a gap clip. Um, for example, one edit technique that I use a good little bit if somebody wants me to do something that's very much driven by music is I'll put a tiny gap clip at the head of my storyline, maybe just five frames long. I will attach the music clip to that gap clip. Then I'll put another separate gap clip that goes to the end of the song exactly. I'll go through and I'll put gut cuts into the gap clip where I think the music changes probably is where I'm going to want to put a scene change. And then once I've done that, I can pull each of the scenes that I'm using in my video and just drag it on top of a gap clip. It's going to replace that gap clip with exactly the same duration. So I'm kind of pre-cutting the pace and rhythm of my video work by using gap clips that I have predetermined to be, you know, this one I want to be uh, a full four-bar measure. This one I want to be more jazz-like, so it's a measure and a half, and I'm going to put my cut there, and I think I'm going to put three rapid shots here, so I'll cut the gap into three places. When I replace all of those things, it kind of astonishes me because it's a rough cut right there without having to do any trimming or anything. Now, you can always go back with not only the gap clips, but every other clip and extend or change or move it around. But that's kind of how the magnetic timeline in Final Cut works for rough cut assembly. Um, it just has these new magnetic ideas that can be very powerful and save you a lot of time in building things. I hope that wasn't too confusing. Look, uh, talk to me and we'll, we'll go through more if you want to. But I, that's one of the reasons that Final Cut is so fast to finish for me. You spend more time putting keywords and, and figuring out what assets you have. But once you decide to assemble... It's, it's taking me, I, I do programs that I used to take three or four days to do and do them in a morning because I'm spending that time in prep, getting the shape of my program kind of predetermined. I hope that makes sense. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael's here. Was there talk about adding a perpetual license option to Final Cut Pro on the iPad? Uh, no, there was not. I think they're fully committed to this kind of new world for that. Uh, nobody said anything about that. Um, you know... As long as it stays down in that zone, I think the value I see as being there. Um, I think the big stopper right now from I, however many people adopt it, I think it's going to be about their ability to rev and, and like, I'm drive me crazy. I'm going to have to buy a new iPad now. I have an iPad Pro, but it's a couple of generations back, and I don't think it's going to run Final Cut for iPad very well. So, you know, Apple does sell hardware, so they want you to get the newest and coolest thing. Chris, did you have a thought about this? 
Is it? I don't. I didn't know that that was a thing. You have to pay for Final Cut every every month on the iPad. Yeah, the 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 app for Final Cut Pro for iPad particularly is a four ninety five four dollars ninety five cent subscription. Five, yeah, so five bucks. Final, you know, Final Cut Ten was released in two thousand eleven. Eleven. Yeah, and I think that since two thousand eleven, the whole world has said, "Oh, subs- subscription to everything." You know, and we've yeah. seen a lot of apps that we. I know that we, you and I have both talked about it, that we've seen a lot of apps that we used to really lean into, really depend on, switch to um, subscriptions. And two things are going to happen. You're going to lose a percentage of your users who, who are like, I don't want to pay for that. But you're going to make money off of the rest of them. Yeah. You're going to make continued cash off the rest of them. I think that Final Cut 10, if it were released today, it would be a subscription. Probably would. I mean, the, the, the business that, community loves that. They, that. they may never change it, but they may. Well, I will say that they did spend a lot of time at the summit talking about how you can start something on the iPad, on Final Cut for iPad, and then get it over pretty seamlessly into your Final Cut on your desktop. So there's nothing wrong if you learn both tools with editing, uh, pre-editing on the plane, or pre-editing in the field, coming back, dumping it off your iPad into your main Final Cut. And then if you're not going to be editing on your iPad, if you don't want to go to the beach and play around with cutting that, you could turn it off and just wait until the next time you go out in the field and want to do editing on your iPad again. So I think there's maybe more ways to manage it. You're not stuck into a long-term subscription. I think it's just turn on and off through the App Store. That's my feeling anyway. Uh, Mitch, you want to get into this? Yeah, I think Blue Oyster Cult should do another song called Don't Fear the Subscription because when you think about it, <laughs> think about it for a second. I have Adobe, and I updated my um, Final Cut, excuse me, my uh, After Effects program uh, religiously uh, every uh, every year, and I spent more than $500 a year on getting the latest version than the subscription is. It's just the principle of the thing that I think bothers people, and we got to kind of get over it because that's the business model they're going to do with until they come out with a new song. I'll articulate the one thing that really upsets me, and that is in the subscription model, not that that some people use, but the one that Adobe uses, the only difficulty is you can't get a runtime version of your workout. So if you fail to pay the subscription and your subscription runs out, you lose access to all of the work that you've created under their system because there's nothing else that can open it. You have the final but you don't have the build things. You don't have your timeline. You don't have access to your actual Isn't creative work now? to build the program. Huh? Yeah, I, yeah I'm I talking about Adobe. Adobe now. Yeah, yeah. But, Final but, Cut's... I'm not sure about that, the, Bill, but Bill, I mean, I don't want to test All it. All you got to do is re, re, restart your subscription and you can open up the file. You Correct. The that, file. But it, if they don't away. dump out of that. But yeah, that's true, which means that they're now the gatekeeper for all of your creativity. Even oh, yeah, though you've not, done the work and it's your intellectual property, some you have to pay somebody else to get back to it. And that is bothersome to me. If I've put the work, I, I your program absolutely is your property. But my work in your program, I see as my property. And the fact that somebody can turn off my access to my work in their program really frosts me. 
And that's one reason I'll probably never go to a subscription for my personal thing. This is a personal feeling. I'm not saying it's bad. A lot of people love it. I can't um, wait to fire up my Final Cut 7 to see how that uh, those programs are holding up. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's just, you know, everybody has a different feeling about this. I don't like the gatekeeper thing. I also just don't like, you know, 10 bucks a month. And I, what happens if, like some of our friends right now, I get sick and I don't edit for six months? Uh, I keep paying because my wife doesn't know how to turn off my subscription. So they keep getting money for a thing I'm not using every month until I'm well enough to stop it or go back to it or whatever. And it, it really does shift the burden. It, it, it shifts f from an opt in to paying for something to I have to opt out not to pay for it, which is kind of weird in my thinking. That That's why subscriptions are so darn profitable for companies. Nigel, what are your thoughts? Yeah, two things. First of all, um, what you just explained is why when I go to sell a company, if I have a, a subscription, I get a better multiple for that company than mm -hmm. if I don't. And right. so, you know, everybody's trying to have the biggest value for their companies and you get a multiple, maybe 50 or 100% higher multiple if it's a subscription revenue than it's a one-time charge revenue. Totally. So, People so spend that, more. So just face it, um, you know, like uh, it's coming. I, I want to go back to the iPad thing. I hear a lot of, you can do this, you can start on an iPad, you can finish on a on a Mac. What I'm not seeing is a lot of people actually doing it. I'm not seeing the workflows yet where mm -hmm. people are really doing it. So I'm interested to know whether this is still an early adopter of, hey, few people playing with this, or whether the million people who downloaded it 950,000 of them have actually really not used it, or there are real operational workflows where there's logic to this. And I, I'm just not seeing them yet. Yeah, I think it's going to be coming. One of the things I noted that it, one of the features that they announced, and this is for 10.7, uh, so it's not out yet. It'll be coming out very soon. But they, they one of the first things they put up, did you see the little microphone icon in there? That wasn't there in the last version, it's there in this one. It allows you to do voiceover recording directly into your iPad um, to add voiceover to your work. Um, that kind of thing would have been nice to have had there from the beginning so people understood it was happening, but the development process was not there. So now that major feature, talking directly into your timelines as a mobile creator out in the field, um, will be out in a week or two or a month or two, however long it takes for them to get 10.7 out. It's still early, early, and it's developing, developing. And if it's like Final Cut originally was back in 1980, no, 2011 when it was out, it didn't have a lot of things when they first shipped it. And those things develop pretty rapidly in the first two or three years. And we got a lot of extra oomph and capacity in it. I am hoping that Final Cut for iPad does the same thing. Early, early days for it. That's how it feels to me. Chris? Yeah, you know, uh, Nigel, I'm intrigued by your, your comment about starting on the iPad and moving to the phone. You know, the iPad can obviously edit. So can my desktop. But, you know, a scalpel and a chainsaw can both cut things. But one does it with a different level of accuracy than the other. And uh, I... I've used, I've tried to edit things with my fingertips on a touch device, and it's just, 
just seems dumb. I, I, the, to me, Final Cut for the iPad angers me because all of that time could have been spent making the desktop app, which I care about, and I'm being selfish. You know, I'm sure there's a bunch of kids that think working on an iPad is cool. I think it's dumb. I, it just angers me because I'd rather them just be working on the tool that I care about, you know? And uh, <laughs> But I will say, Nigel, I think the the real question is, can you get the media in and or out of the iPad quickly? And with the advent of the ability of using USB drives, if you can attach a USB drive, and I know that you can, it's much more useful. I will tell you that there's a workflow that I've done multiple times where I was I wanted to edit something that I shot entirely on my phone. And what I ended up doing one time, I won't go into all the details. What I ended up doing is creating an iMovie project on my phone where I was scouring through my, I think I have like 15,000 photos and video clips on my phone where I was going through, you know, shots of the grandkids. And I was like, oh, here's another one. And I just threw them in a timeline. And I I played with them a little bit, but then I was like, eh, no, I'm going to go finish this on the, fu- on the uh, computer. And I was able to export a package of all that media all at once, boom, into the desktop, into Final Cut, Bob's your uncle, start cutting. Um, that was super useful, super, super useful. But iPad, Final Cut for iPad is just, it literally makes me, my blood boil. <laughs> I will just say, before I go to Nigel, uh, I'm going to put this slide back up. Uh, is that the one I want? Yeah. Um, Chris, who was the one who told us, I've dumped my laptops and desktop computers and I'm doing all my work for my 172,000 subscriber YouTube channel entirely out of that. He uses a trackpad. He uses a, um, what else does he use? Trackpad and a keyboard attached to his iPad and he runs his entire channel off of it now. It's possible. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do. He loves it. This is where he's decided to go and it's working for him. Uh, I would be bereft if I didn't have all the regular tools that I'm used to using because I use a lot of them. I mean, you know, that has a little bit of roles. I'm using the heck out of roles uh, most days because I find it so powerful. So different courses for different courses. So the he, social he attaches, media people. You're saying he can he can attach a keyboard and a trackpad to the iPad? Yeah. Yeah. He was, I think I, you can I, do that to a Mac too. You can, but you can't take I've your heard, Mac. I could be wrong. Out, you know, to the table and do it in the courtyard as easily. You can, but you know, I don't want to bring all the peripherals I got around me. So it's just a different moment of creation, different different task at the moment. I will say that Justine also said that she's doing her main things, but then she has to version a ton. So she has to do something for Instagram and something for TikTok and something, you know, she's building a social media following. So she takes her main piece of content and then pulls things out of that to help her in, with engagement on all the other social media things. Um, you know, I, running, being able to do that on a plane and get out before, you know, get something out to TikTok, get something out to Instagram before you even land may be the coin of the realm in terms of getting out ahead of people and being reactive to what you're, your your followers want. 
You know, it, 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 you can't go back to your desktop between every job. That's how it is nowadays. I'm sorry. Nigel, you had some thoughts? I was going to say my example was not one I necessarily was promoting. I'm just saying it was one I hear. And I think this may be a fun thing to try in the second hour sometime is or in a workshop to, to, to look at the different editing modes and how you might use the two together. Yeah, I do think it's it's relatively new. I'm still not totally conversant, but that's why I wanted to go down that track and learn about those things. Let's go to the next question. Dave Troutman is here from Edmonton, Canada, asking, is iMovie still a thing on the iPad? Uh, yeah, I'm sure it's still there. They wouldn't have tossed it away, but this is the future. And uh, it is much... It, iMovie doesn't have much... iMovie was there really before. Randy Bilos wrote that before he wrote Final Cut, so it's getting kind of long in the tooth now. This can do a lot of the same things and uh, way better. And it's completely optimized for the new M-series chips. So if you've got anything running on one of the new chips, you really should be here. This thing screams on it. Uh, next question. Robert Shoji from Los Angeles, California, asking, based on your summit visit, do you feel that there's a future that's bright for Final Cut Pro, motion, and compressor? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people came away from it. They were excited about the energy there on the show floor, the youth of a lot of the people who are YouTube creators and things like that who were there along with us old traditional editors who were doing it for a long time. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know specifically. They didn't talk about motion and compressor uh, very much. I use compressor a lot. Man, talk about an automated tool that helps me every day. Um, I don't use motion anywhere near as much as I should. But those two $50 things that I spent 11 years ago and they're still – or 12 years ago and they're still functioning for me was the best money I ever spent. And Final Cut just still keeps crushing it for me. So, uh, yeah, it felt like they were very specific. Apple is very engaged in these products. They are not dumping them and going on to something else. Next question. Dave Troutman from Edmonton, Canada. What are your thoughts about how easy it would be to work with Final Cut Pro inside the Vision Pro? Oh, boy, $64,000 question, Dave. Uh, are some of the things, are some of the new code that's in a Final Cut Pro for iPad, is it a nod toward the subset that would be really useful in a Vision Pro environment? Maybe it is. I can't imagine that it would be the best thing in the world to run the big code of full-fledged Final Cut on those goggles. But this thing looks like it would be kind of cool. And this, they talked a lot about the touch-first experience. That's why iPad is different. They're redoing a lot of things for touch-first. For example, there's a, a little pop-out scroll wheel that allows you to do with your fingers things that you would have been done with a mouse before. So they are thinking of the interface in terms of touchability, and that's something that I think Vision Pro is probably going to incorporate. Next question. Robert Choji from Los Angeles is back. Any talk at the summit regarding improvements to audio editing in Final Cut Pro? Uh, they didn't talk as much about that. At least I didn't go to the seminars where they did. Um, every, you know, audio was, boy, we could talk a whole second hour about that. I do a ton of stuff. I'm, like I said, I'm doing audio books now. I don't do recording kind of stuff. I don't do the stuff that logic is good for. But in terms of the ability to use, I mean, Final Cut's audio section is a subset of the code from logic. It is all the quality gives you access to almost all the plugins and things like that. It's just they know that people are going to want to do predominantly audio for video, although, again, with the audiobooks, I'm doing audio for audio in it. And it's got a lot of capabilities. The editors who are used to 
video editors like uh, Avid and even Premiere and things like that get frustrated with it because it doesn't work the same way. But I don't know anybody in my social group, and I know a lot of Final Cut editors all around the world, who have trouble getting any of their work done. They just have to do it differently. It annoys people who aren't used to magnetic, but they get it done. Next question. Oh, Chris, you wanted to say something real quick about that? Yeah, uh, I'd be interested, Robert, in hearing um, what improvements you think it needs. I personally feel that the audio editing in Final Cut is super powerful. And the couple, a couple of things that I find um, super important, very important, are the fact that you, you can do... Um, magnetic editing in the primary storyline or a sub storyline. Keep in mind, you can do that in the below the primary storyline. You can make a sub storyline of all your audio and for editing dialogue. That's, that's really useful. And then also the other thing that's, that's very powerful is it, you have, you can do subframe audio edits in the audio. Um, a lot and of people don't you, know that you can get down and work you on start the, almost doing that. Level. Yeah. When you start doing that and then you, and then you start using the keyboard shortcuts, which make which jumps your edit by like a full frame. You realize that editing audio on a frame is back to my reference earlier. It's like editing with a chainsaw. It's like okay, well, yes, I cut it, but I don't think we're going to save the the patient, you know. And so, when when the subframe audio editing is is really powerful, um, Robert, reach out to me. I'm just cur personally curious. Reach out to me on Discord and tell me what you think it needs. And yes, everybody still wants an audio mixer. Eh. I yeah, never use the audio mixer. They want Mitch, a Mac do you use the in. audio mixer when you're editing in Premiere? Um, the mixer in Premiere, yes. I don't use an external mixer, but I do have a uh, uh, Avid created uh, creative artist uh, console external, but I rarely go to it. Yeah. Ah, well, thank you all for paying attention today. Uh, it was fun to be there and see all my friends. I really appreciate um, it. was just nice to be back into all seeing the group. They're, they're just, I have so many friends there, and it was just wonderful in that respect. Uh, let's see. Tomorrow, building a multi-view tool for NDI. So if you're interested in NDI workflows, come tomorrow. Thank you to all of our producers, those of you who asked questions. For everybody who was on the panel today, thank you. Uh, for doing that, the, the incredible crew in the back end who always sit there quietly and just make all of this possible for all of you all around the world who uh, want to learn uh, the things that we want to talk about uh, every day. We appreciate you. Uh, the Tlaloc Traversal today, we did uh, 64,762 miles. That's 104,224 kilometers, more than 100, uh, 512 million bananas for scale. Thank you for watching. We will be back tomorrow with another show. See you next time. Mitch, don't hang up. I have a, I have a question for you. So the, the show's going to get really dark if you're still listening. No. Uh, <laughs> That'll increase viewership. Mitch, you had, you had made the comment earlier, would it be of interest to somebody who doesn't know anything about Final Cut? Do you feel in your experience with Premiere that you're missing out on something? No, because I'm a, um, I'm a technical Luddite. I like the AB roll editing scenario. I don't want to learn a different way. And if I were to put the bandwidth to something to learn, I would go to uh, Resolve. 
Now, why? Yeah, what is I, it that's attractive to you about Resolve? Do you do tons of color work or something? It does everything. Not that that's all it does. It does everything all, all in one place. No, it doesn't do everything. That's the problem. It doesn't do magnetic editing. It doesn't do uh, rolls. It doesn't do... Uh, well, the that's key, sort of like it doesn't saying do Ikea keywords. doesn't have...